Okay. Friends, this year at Seven Mile Road, we are almost celebrating Easter not once, but 13 times. 13 times in a row because today we kick off a brand new series in our sermons where we are considering the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a quick preview of where we're going and a review of where we've come from. Uh, we just finished eight weeks in a series called Unbelievable, where we looked at some of the obstacles and objections to Christianity, some of the things that make believing in Jesus so difficult. And so we waded through the dark and sometimes murky waters of doubt and skepticism and questions. And now we're almost pivoting. This week is sort of a hinge as we turn to the rock-solid, firm foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is very fitting, by the way, if you are someone who is sort of considering Christianity and the claims of Jesus, it's right and good for you to start with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is sort of like that, that Jenga piece that's holding the whole thing together. And if you can somehow dislodge or displace that one piece, the whole thing comes toppling down. The resurrection of Jesus is the central claim of Christianity. And so if you're going to investigate or consider whether Christianity is worth believing, whether the claims of Jesus are worth accepting, you ought to start with the resurrection. Because if it's not true, then Christianity matters not at all. Then Christianity has nothing to offer to the world. If it is true, then everything matters. It suddenly changes everything. And so what we want to do is we want to spend a sustained long season thinking through the resurrection and what it means and why it matters. Now, I, I know that some of us may be thinking 13 weeks, what on earth could we possibly talk about for that long, right? After all, if the resurrection is true, it means we die and we go to heaven. What else is there? But as I've thought through this and as I've read on this with some of the guys, I want you to hear that the resurrection holds for us massive implications. Implications not just for what happens in life after death, but what it means for life before death. And so sort of the tagline we've used in this series is believing in life after death and rethinking life before death. And we want to say that the resurrection holds huge implications for both. And hopefully, this series will help us do both. And so what we want to do today, as we start to think for a season on the resurrection, is start with the passage that Ronnie just read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This chapter is a lengthy treatise on the resurrection. It's got more on the resurrection than lots of other places in the Bible. And throughout the coming weeks, we'll keep returning to 1 Corinthians 15. But what we want to do today is we want to follow the pattern that Paul lays out for us in the first 11 verses, the passage that Ronnie read for us. Because what Paul does in the first 11 verses, before he says anything else about the resurrection, is to first lay out the historicity of the resurrection. Let me say that again. Before he teaches through what the resurrection means and why it matters and how it could change your life before and after death, what he wants to start by doing is simply to lay out the historical reliability of the resurrection. It's as if Paul is saying, before I say anything else, I need you to know this really 
happened. Hear that again. Before I say anything else about the resurrection, Paul is saying, I want you to know this really happened in history, real. Not as this, I sort of believe if I try hard enough, this inside, invisible, spiritual, can't touch it kind of faith. Paul is saying, no, in real history, in real time and space, this thing really happened. It wasn't that Jesus had this spiritual resurrection and everyone sort of believed it in their hearts. They're saying, no, 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 Paul's saying, I'm laying everything else I'm saying on the fact that in history, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, a human being born of a woman named Mary, raised in Nazareth, preaching in Israel, on trial under Pontius Pilate, crucified by the Romans, and I'm telling you, on the third day, he rose from the dead. He walked out of a tomb. That really happened. Now, if you're here and you have a hard time accepting the reality of the resurrection, I want you to know I have all the sympathy in the world for you. And that's because the Bible is not ashamed nor hides the fact that nobody believed in the resurrection. The Bible doesn't try to hide the fact that every person who encountered the resurrection in the earliest moments didn't believe it. Nobody did. Nobody saw the resurrection coming. If you're in doubt about the resurrection, you have good company because everybody was in doubt. Everyone was surprised and shocked and amazed at the thought that Jesus had come back from the dead. If you read the gospel accounts of what happened in the immediate moments after this news that Jesus had risen, you'll, you'll see Nobody saw this coming. You don't find that the disciples were in a room Saturday night after Jesus had been buried going, don't worry, he's coming back tomorrow. It'll be all right. No, what you find is that they are huddled together in a locked room because they're scared to death that the guys who got Jesus are going to come after them. That's what you find. What you find is that they go, I guess we banked on the wrong guy. Because Luke 24, the story which we get our name from, is the story of two guys who are, or two disciples who are walking. And what did they say except, we really hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What does that mean? What they're saying is, we, we backed the wrong horse here. We, we followed the wrong guy. We really hoped he was going to be the one who was going to redeem Israel and do something great. But he's dead. Nobody saw the resurrection coming. And when the reports did come, what was the reactions? It was, these women must be telling an idle tale, is what the gospel say. It, translation is, it's nonsense. It's, you know, it's just what women say. That's not my interpretation. I want you to know that's, that's what the commentaries say, right? This is just an idle women's tale. This, this is unbelievable. The immediate reaction is, somebody stole his body. That's not something we invented. That was the first reaction. Somebody must have stolen the body. Where is it? A woman's weeping by the gravesite going, if you've taken the body or you know where it is, would you please tell me? Nobody saw it coming. It's unbelief. It's marveling. Or it's Thomas just straight out saying what the rest of us would be thinking. I will never believe. I will never believe 
this. If you've got doubts, I want you to know that the Bible has lots of company for you. And it's with you and your doubts in mind that Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 15 by giving you the first 11 verses. To say, before I say anything else about why this is glorious and what means and why it matters, I want you to know this really happened. And so Paul lays out some facts for us. Before we consider Paul and his facts, let me just say this as well. If you're here and you have come to experience the risen Lord Jesus Christ, then I imagine that today will be wonderfully bolstering for your faith. I think it has the potential to be a good shot in the arm where you more realize, I really believe this. I have no doubt that this happened. And for others of you, I would say this, that you should at least be honest with yourselves that no matter what evidence might be presented to you, if you are committed to a place that you can't have resurrection in your worldview, then you'll interpret the evidence within that worldview. You should at least be honest enough to know if you're committed to a worldview that says resurrections cannot happen, then you will fit the evidence within that worldview. You'll interpret it that way. I I heard a story of a man who thought for sure that he was dead, right? And so the tale goes, he really thought he was dead. And no matter what his parents and his friends and and his family are trying to convince him, he's just convinced he's dead. So they bring him to a doctor and and try and run some tests to show him he's alive. And he won't believe. He really thinks he's a walking ghost. And so finally a doctor thinks, "Uh, let me ask you something. Do dead men bleed? And so the man says, no, they don't bleed. And so he grabs a pin and he pricks his finger. And the man looks at his finger and it's bleeding. And he says, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. (laughs) Right? What's, What's the point? The point is, if you're committed to a certain worldview, then you'll interpret all the evidence within that worldview. And the resurrection is challenging you to let it explode your worldview. And for you to consider something that till now maybe you would have never considered. The Bible is honest with you to say, the spiritual things of God cannot be believed without the help of the Holy Spirit. So my hope is that the Holy Spirit might help us To come from a place where we're committed to unbelief, perhaps even today, to move to a place where we are committed to Jesus Christ. So here's what Paul says. Ronnie read for it it for us, but let me read for you again. 1 Corinthians 15, this is verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So let's take a moment, we'll pray, ask for the Spirit to help us understand spiritual things, and then I want us to consider four facts that Paul presents in this passage. Let's pray for a moment together. Your word tells us, O Lord, that the natural man cannot see spiritual things. They must be helped and aided 
and impressed upon the heart by the Spirit. So we'd ask you now, Holy Spirit, to come and do a great work in us. We find company with those who doubted in our own hearts. When we find ourselves unwilling to believe, we find that there are many like us, even in the pages of Scripture, even in the moments around the resurrection. And yet you convince them, so now convince us, that we might have the certainty that comes with faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. And I pray that today you would give evidence and reason for that certainty. Born by your Spirit, aided now even by the things we'll talk about this morning. Come help us hear and see and understand and even perhaps believe. Come do this, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the first fact that Paul presents. Fact. Jesus died. Jesus died. Look again at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now you might ask, if we are trying to talk about the reality of the resurrection, why would we need to establish that Jesus died? Why is that fact one? And here's why. The reason is because for 2,000 years, people have been trying to offer alternative explanations as to what happened that day. Right? Christianity really was born. You can't deny that. The world really was changed. So what happened? And one of the suggestions that is put forth is this. Maybe Jesus didn't really die. This has gained some traction. It's gotten some press over the years. The idea that maybe he looked like he died. He had a weak pulse. And they weren't scientific enough to know that he didn't really die. And then on a Sunday morning, he woke back up. And so what you have is a resuscitation, not a resurrection. Now, I want you to know this has largely been discounted by serious scholars for probably hundreds of years. But it still has some press, some traction in our day, so let's consider it for a second. Not only do all four of the Gospels independently speak of Jesus being crucified and dead, but you have outside biblical sources from the early days of the first century, all testifying that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who was put to death by the Romans on a cross. A man named John Dominic Crossan, a man who does not himself believe in the literacy of the Bible or in the line-by-line -line reading of the Bible, himself says this, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. There's very little doubt as to the fact that Jesus really died. But if you don't believe that, here's what some would say. No, 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 listen. He looked like he died. Weak pulse. He, he, he appeared dead, but he wasn't. And so then this is what you must believe. What you must then believe is that Jesus then, after being flogged and scourged. Now, if, you, if you've read or watched The Passion of the Christ you've remembered a scene of what that tends to look like. And, and historians tell us that those who went through the Roman flogging had their skin often hang off like ribbons when they were done. I mean, they, they pulverized a person. Often men died just from the flogging alone. 
But this would have us believe that after being flogged and scourged, Jesus then nailed to the cross and crucified, then with a spear jabbed through his ribcage past his lungs and breaking his heart, was then laid in a tomb with a very weak pulse. And then, with no medical attention or treatment or food or water, on Sunday morning, very early in the day, he woke up, regained consciousness, scraped off the 75 pounds of spices that were put on his body, wrapped up the linen real nice and neat, rolled away the stone, fought off the guards, and then after that, with nail piercings in his feet, a bloody pierced foot, did a sort of half marathon to the village of Emmaus and back, 14 miles, just a light trot, and then showed up to his disciples and convinced them all he had risen from the dead. Pathetic, mutilated, bleeding everywhere, and that the disciples then said, that's the resurrection body I want, right? I can't wait to get a glorified body like that one. At that point, I would say you have a much greater faith than I do, right? Because it takes an enormous amount of faith. And so all scholars, by and large, have largely discounted this for hundreds of years. Paul says, it's not that he appeared to die. No, for I delivered to you as of what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Paul adds, he died, and let me tell you, he says, he died for our sins. That the weight of all of that, born in real history, was for our sins. That when God was dealing with him, with all the cruelty that happened in the crucifixion, it was for us. All the cruelty of the crucifixion. I want you to hear that. The cross is the word from which we get excruciating. It means out of the cross. In fact, Romans would not even say the word cross because it was too crass for polite conversation. It wasn't something that a good Roman citizen should ever think about. This is what Jesus endured, and Paul says it was for our sins. Fact, Jesus died. Paul then presents a second historical fact for us, and this is what he says. The second fact that Paul would say is that Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised. Look again at verse 3 and 4. For what I, I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, I'll concede that you may not be ready to say with Paul, Jesus rose. Fine, granted. But you will have to deal with and wrestle with and explain Jesus died, that's fact. Jesus was buried, that's fact. And the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he rose from the dead, granted. But you do have to wrestle with the reality that the tomb was empty. Something happened. Now, why do we say that? Why do we know that? Listen, Christianity was not born in some remote place far away from where the original things happened. It wasn't as if the disciples went off to China or Iceland and said, you know, there was a guy named Jesus. He died. He rose again. You're just going to have to take our word for it. 
No, Christianity was born in the very city in which Jesus was buried. This claim that the tomb was empty couldn't have lasted for a day if anyone could have just gone and shown that there was a body in the tomb. It would have been discounted before it got off the ground. There would have been no problem proving, showing that there was no resurrection. And yet you find not one word from any Roman literature that was opposed to Christianity or Jewish literature that was opposed to Christianity that someone had somehow produced the body. Nowhere. It was very easy to verify. And we would go, what did you expect? Did you actually expect them to go into the tomb and verify? They would have never done that. That's because we don't know what Jewish burial practices were like. Let me tell you something. They always went to the tomb. You know why? The Jewish burial process was a two-step process, not one like ours. And so what you did was you buried a person in a tomb, sort of on a shelf, and that was phase one. And then they knew once the body had decomposed, they went in to grab the bones. This is what an ossuary is called. They, that's why they wrapped them in spices so that as the body is decomposing, it wouldn't be too much to bear. So that you could go in and grab the bones. This is why just a few years ago, when someone said they discovered Jesus' tomb, what they said was they found the box in which the bones were. It would have been more than easy to verify that there were bones or a body there, and yet no one did so. In fact, it's telling to us that the earliest opposition to Christianity was not to deny the empty tomb, but rather to give an explanation for the empty tomb. You should hear that. That the first opponents to Christianity didn't say the tomb was not empty. What they did say was the disciples must have took the body. And that's not just born to us in Matthew's gospel. Even up to 150 years later, the propaganda of the day, attested to by outside historical sources, is that the story on the street was still the disciples must have taken the body. Now, that doesn't prove resurrection. What it does show us, though, is that even from the earliest hours, even the opponents of Christianity granted an empty tomb and tried to explain it and how it happened. There was a Jesus of Nazareth who died. He was buried. And on that Sunday morning, there was an empty tomb. An Oxford historian named William Wan says it like this. He says, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb, and those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. So maybe if you're willing to grant that with me, you'd say, okay, fine, Jesus died. Fine, the tomb was empty, but that certainly, you might say, doesn't prove resurrection. And you'd be right. There's, there's all kinds of possible explanations, right? It might be that, in fact, the disciples did steal the body. Or maybe you'd say, maybe they so badly wanted Jesus to be alive that their mind played tricks on them and they thought they saw him. Or maybe they just made the whole thing up. Well, Paul would follow this then by saying, let me give you another fact. Fact one is Jesus died. Fact two is that he was buried, and Paul says he was raised on the third day. The tomb was empty, but here's the third fact. Many claim to see Jesus alive. Many claim to see Jesus alive. I'm not giving you necessarily here a theological word. I'm just saying to you, historically speaking, we know many 
claim to see Jesus alive. In the verses that we read, what does Paul say? He first appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he says he appeared to 500 brothers at one time, and he goes even further to say, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why does Paul add that? Paul is saying, listen, I want you to know that this news of the resurrection isn't the fabrication of one guy sitting in a cave saying he said something or saw something. This is the eyewitness account of Peter and then the twelve, and then 500 at one time, many of whom, he says, are still alive. The reason he says that is this. When 1 Corinthians is written, it's about, and scholars tell us, it's about 15 to 25 years after all this had taken place. So we're not talking 70, 80, 90 years, a generation later. This is within the lifetime. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he's saying, listen, 500 people saw him at once, many of whom are still alive. And the reason he's saying that is they're still around. As if to invite them, sort of throw down the gauntlet to them and say, you can question them, you can interview them, you can ask them yourself. They're still alive. They're still around. Paul is going out of his way to give you historical reliability for the resurrection. Many of them are still alive. It'd be like this. If 25 years from now, I stood up in a room and I said, I belong to a great church called Seven Mile Road. It gathered in northeast Philadelphia. It started in just some homes with a group of people and then slowly grew. And they inherited a $2 million property for free. And the people 25 years from now go, yeah, right. Nobody's going to give you $2 million for free. And I go, you know what? Many of them are still alive. You can talk to them. You think that's verifiable? That's not even long enough for there to be myth or legend to grow around. Paul's saying the folks who saw this are still alive. You can ask them. You can talk to them. You can interview them. You can verify what I'm saying. One after another after another claim to see Jesus alive. Now, that they claim to see him doesn't necessarily make the resurrection true. Some might say, sure, they claim to see him, but what they were doing is they were hallucinating. And that's been thrown forward for a long time. What they were doing was they were hallucinating. They wanted to see Jesus, and so their mind convinced them that they saw Jesus. And yet, even psychologists would tell us, hallucination is not something that's shared by 500 people at once. Hallucination is a very private thing. Psychologists would tell us, it'd be like me telling you, hey, I had a really great dream last night. When you go to sleep, make sure that you dream that too. And then we'll talk about it the next day, right? Or you wake up in the middle of the night and you tap your wife and you say, let's, let's dream this great dream together. We don't have to go to Hawaii this year. I saw it, right? <laughs> they weren't hallucinating. 500 people don't hallucinate at the same time. You don't even share the details of such a dream. Others say, look, look, they may have claimed to see Jesus, but isn't it a little bit fishy that all these so-called eyewitnesses all wanted to see Jesus? Isn't it fishy that you have very biased eyewitness accounts? I mean, Matthew wanted to see him alive, and so did Mark and Luke and John and, and all these guys who claimed to have seen him. Isn't it fishy that all the eyewitness accounts are bi biased accounts? 
For one, no. And two, it's not even just that. Let me, let me explain. A bias doesn't necessarily make the thing untrue. Would we say the same thing about the Holocaust? Some of the best accounts that we have about the Holocaust and the atrocities of the Nazis are from Jewish historians. Would we thereby go, because they've got some skin in the game, we can't trust anything they say? In fact, the reality is, it's often non-Jewish historians who tend to downplay what happened. And the passion and bias of the Jewish historians fights to ensure the historic accuracy of the event. That they had skin in the game doesn't mean that their words were unbelievable. But moreover, Paul is saying here, it's not true. Not everybody who said they saw Jesus wanted to see him or was looking for him. Look again at verses 7 through 9. He says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul there names two guys who I can promise you were not looking for the resurrection who weren't biased in the least, who weren't wanting to see Jesus. The first he names is James. James is Jesus' kid brother. And you can imagine, if your older brother was walking around saying, I'm God, worship me, you know what you'd think of your brother. Right, that, that chuckle, that's exactly what James thought of him. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us they thought he was out of his mind. That's not an AJ translation. That's, that's a word for word. They thought he was out of his mind. John 7 verse 5 says it very plainly. You should read it later. It says, not even his brothers believed in him. You should hear that. That's James. Not even his brothers believed in him. James was not looking for the resurrection. James thought Jesus was out of his mind, and when he was crucified, it just confirmed what he had known all along. That guy wasn't the one. Yet something happened. Something happened to the point that historians tell us that many years later, they took James to the top of the Temple Mount, and they said, listen, everybody in this city listens to what you say. You announce to them that Jesus is not the Lord. And old James now, said to these men, I see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And they threw him off the Temple Mount. And tough James didn't even die from the fall. So now, broken on the floor, he's still praying to his Father in Jesus' name. And they finish the job by throwing stones at his head until someone takes a club and bashes his head in. Until then, he didn't recant. Something happened. And Paul's saying, I'll tell you what happened. Jesus appeared to him. And there was no way he would have believed except Jesus appeared. And he tells you further, and neither would I. Did you hear that? For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But verse 8 is, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. You know who Paul was? This is Saul, Acts 9. This is Saul, Acts 6, who literally consented to the stoning to death of a man named Stephen for making the claim that Jesus was alive. 
Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Saul was happy as could be to kill everybody who said Jesus was alive. He wasn't hoping. He wasn't biased. And yet, something changed so that the one who destroyed churches spent the rest of his life planting churches until he too was beheaded for this Jesus. Something happened, and Paul would say, I'll tell you what happened. I saw him. I saw him. Some would say it's a hallucination. No, it's not. Some would say maybe these guys were biased. No, they weren't. But some would say, look, they just made it up. Fine, Jesus died. Fine, he was buried. Fine, some people said they saw him, but they just made it up. All it is is a a hoax, a, a conspiracy, a lie that got fabricated and got out of control. Now, let me just say a few things quickly to this as to why it can't just be a lie or a legend. For one, we've said this before many times, but I want you to hear it again. If they were creating a lie, they put in there some details that would have unraveled their own story. If they were hoping for this to spread throughout the first century, they put into the story some things that would have immediately worked against them. For example... If you notice in Paul's account of the eyewitnesses, you'll notice he only puts forward some of the men, the leading men. The church is being established, so he says, you know who saw him? Peter saw him, and James saw him, and the apostles saw him, and 500 brothers saw him. That's the account you'd expect throughout all the Gospels if this was just made up. But all the Gospels seem to make women the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now, let me tell you why that would be totally counterproductive. Let me read you just some quotes of what the thought was about women in that day. This is from the Talmud. This is from early Jewish thinking. First quote, sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. Again, I want you to know these are not my thoughts, okay? This, I'm just reading. (laughs) It would be better for you to take the precious law and burn the whole thing than to entrust it to a woman. Second quote. Any evidence which a woman gives is not valid, also they are not valid to offer. A third quote coming from Josephus. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and temerity of their sex, since it is probably that they may not speak truth, either out of hope or gain or fear of punishment. All I'm saying to you is, If you're going to have the first century world believe the account of the resurrection, you would not put it on the backs of women as your chief witnesses. It makes no sense whatsoever. If you want this thing to be believed, you would have never written it that way. You would have never fabricated a tale where the key eyewitnesses, the first eyewitnesses, were all women. I want you to hear this. And everybody knew that so that some years later, when fake gospels started to be written, you know what you find? All the women are conveniently left out. So some decades later, a forgery is named the Gospel of Peter. And you know what you find? All that you'd expect in a legend. The story doesn't read with the plain narrative that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John read. There's all the lights and special effects and bells and whistles you'd expect from a legend. So, for example, 
you know what you don't see in any of the Gospels? The moment we'd all want to see, which is, how did Jesus wake up? Did he, did he scratch his eyes? Did, did he stretch? How did he walk out? The Gospels don't say any of that. But the fakes do. The Gospel of Peter says that this voice rang out from heaven. Two enormous angels came down. They rolled the stone away. They were so big, their heads touched the clouds. Then they brought Jesus out in blinding light, and there was a talking cross that came out. And literally, the cross spoke to the whole world, I have preached the gospel to the dead. That's a legend. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you don't get any of the lights or special effects. You get these details that don't seem to matter to the story, like after his resurrection, he went fishing, and they caught 153 fish. What's 153 fish have to do with anything? It's eyewitness accounts of what happened. And the Gospel of Peter conveniently says nothing about women eyewitnesses. This is not just some kind of legend. Moreover, let me tell you why for sure. This is not some kind of conspiracy or hoax made up by the disciples. They all died for this. How do you account for that? Now, that they died for it doesn't necessarily prove that it was true, but it does prove they really believed this. They all died for this. If they were making it up, don't you think one of them at one point would have said, just kidding, like when they were about to boil them in oil or cut them in half or behead them or throw them off the temple mount, one of them would have said, we were just making it up, right? None of it. I read one preacher talk about you know, if you read of Watergate and the whole conspiracy with President Nixon, you had some of the most powerful men in the world concocting this conspiracy. Some of the closest allies and personal friends to the president. All the resources in the world at their disposal. The conspiracy lasted two weeks before one of them turned state's evidence for fear of punishment and spilled everything. Two weeks, and there was no threat of beheading or stoning or being thrown anywhere. It was just embarrassment or time in prison. Two weeks before someone spilled the beans of the whole thing. These guys went to their death saying, I saw him. I saw him alive. Now again, that someone dies for something doesn't make it necessarily true. You could have a terrorist fly a plane into a building for a wrong belief. You could have a, a Buddhist burn themselves for a political statement. But at that point, you're missing the point that I'm making. All I'm saying is they believed it. This can't be legend. This can't be a hoax. They believed it at the cost of their life. This is not just some things they wrote about. Paul is saying this wasn't a hallucination. This wasn't a myth. This wasn't a legend. Instead, Paul says he appeared to Peter and then to the 12 and to the apostles and to 500 at one time, many of those who are still alive. He appeared to James and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jesus was dead. Jesus was buried. The tomb was empty Many people claim to see Jesus alive. Let me give you one last one, and then we'll be done. Here's the fourth fact that Paul presents, and it is 
that this gospel transformed the world. This gospel transformed the world. Look at 15 verse 11. It's just a short verse. It says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. What I just want you to notice there is Paul is now talking to the Corinthians and he's saying this message has gotten all the way to here and you've believed it. Corinth is a far ways away from Jerusalem. And all Paul is trying to say here is this message has spread throughout everywhere and the world has been transformed and the world has been changed. Listen to me. Not even the most hardened skeptic among us could refute or not acknowledge the massive world-changing impact that the announcement of this gospel had. And all I'm trying to say there is something happened in 33 AD that changed the world. You've got to account for what that is. Something happened in the first century that the world has since never been the same. And you've got to account for that. Something changed the world. And, and you've got to ask, what birthed this movement called Christianity? How did it suddenly make things change overnight? I want you to hear this. World views changed like that in an, in an instant, overnight. And if you study worldviews, you know things don't change quickly. Right? You talk about the pre-modern era, the modern era, post-modern era. These things took hundreds of years to form. Overnight, the world was changed. How do you account for that? So think about this, for example, with me for a minute. If you grew up around the church or near religion, how likely are religious people to change? How good are they with change? I can tell you, we planted Seven Mile Road just four or five years ago. I can't tell you how many people go, we didn't sing like that. That's not, that's not how we did the service. That's not how we started. We don't like change. Last week, I was talking with Sibby, and we were thinking about singing four songs at the end. And we literally had a five-minute conversation going, but we don't usually sing four songs. We, we only sing three songs after communion. Can we do a fourth song? Some Jews had worshipped on Saturday for 6,000 years. And like that, they switched to Sunday. For 6,000 years, they had heard God's word that said, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. And in a moment, they said, let's gather on the first day of the week. This is the Lord's day now. And they gathered on the day of Jesus' resurrection. For 6,000 years, they said together every day, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And like that, they said, Jesus is Lord. Like that, they said, just like we praise Yahweh, now we praise Jesus. For 6,000 years, they knew the weight of their sin, and they knew, all right, how do we get rid of our sin? We bring an animal to the temple. And we slaughter it, and God will forgive us by the blood of that lamb. And like that, they stopped offering sacrifices. So that the writer of Hebrews will say things like, there's no more sacrifices. Jesus has died. Jesus' blood has been shed. Jesus has risen from the dead. Our sins are forgiven in him. The world changed, and you've got to account for that somehow, some way. 
And Paul would say, I'll tell you what happened. Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, it's all true. There is a God. He did create the world. We have sinned against him. We are lost in our sins. This whole world is broken. We can't fix ourselves or save ourselves. And so God came in the Son, in the flesh, to rescue us. He did live a perfect life. He did die under the Romans on a cross. He did rise again. He is making all things new. He is forgiving sinners. And we can't save ourselves. We are saved in him. It's all gloriously true. All of it. Four facts. Jesus died. That's a fact. Jesus was buried and the tomb was empty. That's a fact. Many people claim to see Jesus alive. That's a fact. The world has never again been the same. That's a fact. What explains all of that? Paul says it like this. Hear it one more time. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me.